I think we can all agree that one of the most tired and cliched, cliched ways to open a essay or a research paper or even a sermon is with the words, the dictionary definition of X is this or that. So we should just agree to stop doing that. But let's try it out one more time. This, this week when I looked up the, the dictionary definition of consolation, I saw that there was a, you know, the main definition, but then there was a, a secondary definition. And it was a secondary definition that was unique to the United States. So in the United States, in athletic competitions, there's this thing called the consolation game. So if, you, if you're eliminated in the semifinals, then there's a special game for you to play. The third and fourth place teams have a game called the consolation game where they duke it out for third place. And it occurred to me as I read this, is there, is there any worse thing to, to kind of force upon two teams that have just missed the championship game? Is there any worse application of the word consolation? I mean, how not comforting and consoling is it to play in that game? Right? This, is, this is the game for the losers. And when you win this game, you're not even the best losers. You're third place still, right? I mean, it could only be worse if they just say, the trophy is a teddy bear and a blankie. This is your consolation, right? It's a terrible application of that word, consolation, if you have any competitive spirit. It's not consoling at all to come in third place, right? Just ask Astros fans this year, right? It's no fun. So we, don't, we don't like that idea of being, of being uh, this kind of pity, right? Con consolation in that sense is a, is a terrible definition of the term. But perhaps there's something in our, our pride there too, right? Our competitive spirit, we might say. Uh, but I think in general, consolation is a hard concept to take on. Like, do you need comfort today? Well, I may need comfort, but I don't want you to know that I need comfort. You know, I don't want to present the kind of vulnerability that would admit to needing consolation. If, if we have that attitude, then the, the gospel and the Christmas story may be hard for us to hear. Because this message that we hear about in the birth of Christ is a message of consolation. We already sang about it. We're talking the, the sermon title from our, that line in, in Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. The strength and consolation of Israel. I'm, I'm butchering the line now. So we say in the first line, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. It's not just a, a hymn word, but it's a Bible word. And it's the word we find in our passage this morning as we meet this prophet, Simeon, in the temple. So after Jesus is born, his parents take him to the temple. And there's an offering that they need to make, according to Jewish law, for the purification of, of Mary uh, and, and it's an offering that you're supposed to give for the, the one who opens the womb. And so they come into the temple, and they meet this man, Simeon, in Luke chapter 2. So let's, let's read our passage together. We're going to look at Luke 2, 22 through, 20, through, 22 through 35. And as we, as we go through the message, we'll hang our sermon on, on three hooks, on playing on this idea of consolation. We're going to first see that it's a promised consolation, it's the surprising consolation, and it's the marvelous consolation. 
And because I, consolation is hard for me to say, I'm going to say comfort. So it's the promised comfort, the surprising comfort, and the marvelous comfort. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. Let's read together Luke chapter 2, verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb, who first opens the womb, shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword shall pierce your own throat, shall pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is God's word. Thank you. So Luke introduces us to this character, this guy Simeon. He tells us he was in Jerusalem, he lived there. This was the spiritual epicenter of God's people, where the temple was. But the more important fact about Simeon is that he's righteous and devout, and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. And he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. We'll come back to consolation in a second, but we should just note that when New Testament Christians read about the Holy Spirit resting on someone, we may be tempted to kind of think it's an insignificant detail because we believe, rightly, that God's Spirit is his gift to us by the risen Christ, that it's, it's ours, the Spirit indwells us permanently. And so we might think, well, to be Spirit-filled or to have the Spirit rest upon you is just a synonym for one of God's people. And that's true in the New Testament. A New Covenant Christian is like that. But that wasn't the case in the Old Covenant So before Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven and gave his spirit to his people, in the Old Covenant, we see God's spirit coming upon a person for a specific purpose. So you see God's spirit rested on the leaders of Israel, like the judges. You often see that phrase applied to the various judges. The spirit of God came upon them for for their work of leading Israel. Similarly, we read it of Joshua. We read it about King David having the spirit of God coming upon him. Most commonly, we see the Spirit of God coming upon men and women sometimes to enable them to serve as prophets. So the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon a person so they could do a job that the Lord had given them. So Simeon here is presented to us like one of these Old Testament figures, these Old Testament prophets. He's a Holy Spirit-anointed, a Holy Spirit-led prophet of God, And the Lord has seen fit to reveal to Simeon some things about this unique time and place in which he lives in the history of God's people. 
And so Simeon is faithfully waiting for God to do the things he said he would do, both in his word and that he specifically revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit. But let's go back to what he was waiting for. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's waiting for this comfort. Right? Again, this implies that if you need consolation or comfort, then something bad's going on in your life. You're, you're grieving. You've suffered some loss. You're in distress. Right? We, we console a baby who's crying by trying to feed it or change it, hold it. Consolation is what people need when they're suffering. And righteous Simeon knows not just that he's in some distress. He's no, he knows that Israel, God's people, they are in distress. And their distress is intense. They are in this intense distress because they have forsaken their God. Their distress is the distress one feels and suffers when they're under God's judgment. Simeon knows this because he's righteous, because he's spirit-filled, but he's waiting for God to bring consolation. And his waiting for consolation is not some pie-in-the-sky optimism. He wasn't just a rosy guy. He believes this is happening because of he's, he's a reader of Israel's scriptures. The Old Testament tells us of the way that Israel was God's beloved firstborn son, but they rebelled against their good father, and therefore that's why they're in this distress. So let's read another passage in Isaiah. Geo read one for us earlier, but Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6 is, is how the prophet Isaiah, also a spirit-filled prophet, lays out the problem that Israel has. So this is uh, Isaiah sort of speaking to the Lord about Israel. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. That they, they make agreements with these foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. This means they're, they're lustful for worldly power and wealth. Their land is filled with idols. They bow, bow down to the work of their hands, so that their own, the, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust. This is Isaiah's word to the people. Enter into the rock and hide to the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So Isaiah is telling of the coming terrible day of the Lord. You can keep reading in Isaiah 2 and see more about it. They're going to be hiding in rocks because of God's majesty. And it's, it's not good news that God's come near. He's coming near for judgment because their land is polluted with fortune tellers and idolatry and treasures. Israel is under judgment. Isaiah wrote before the exile of Israel, so before Babylon and Assyria came and took the people away. And so he's foretelling kind of two different judgments, this very immediate judgment that's coming, but there's also these hints of the, the final judgment. They're going to be judged here in the present, and then they're going to meet their maker and enter into final judgment. And much of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are, are filled with pronouncements of judgment against Israel and then against other nations. 
So we, we get to these first 39 chapters. It's mostly bad news. There are some glimmers of hope. But then there's this great turning point. If you read through Isaiah, you'll see this. And it begins in Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 are sometimes called the, the book of comfort or the book of consolation. And they, that this, this, this book in Isaiah begins with these famous words. Comfort, comfort, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Almost all the Gospels go back to the first verses of Isaiah 40 to, to, to speak of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord. This, these, these are prophecies that are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus about this great comfort or consolation that's going to come where God is going to restore his people. If you dive into your Old Testament and really understand the story, we should be astounded that this is happening. After all of Israel's sin, after, after all of their rebellion, their repeated turnings away from God, after many, many warnings, after being carried into exile, after the temple being destroyed, there's a note of comfort, a promise of restoration. The passage that Gio read earlier summarizes this in Isaiah 57, 17 and 9 through 19. So the Lord said, or God says through Isaiah, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. So Israel's under judgment. God is hiding himself, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. You would think, well, that's the end. I was angry and he went on backsliding. But then verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Israel's under God's judgment. They're, they're the right objects of his wrath. They're getting what they deserve. But God offers promises, restoration, pardon. These are the promises, peace. He promises to heal them. And this is not physical healing so much as it's the, the spiritual healing that they profoundly need because their hearts are so far from God. It's the healing of forgiveness. That's the comfort. Notice that we even hear echoes or premonitions of the Beatitudes. Comfort those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The Lord promises comfort. I think even those of us who know the Bible pretty well can miss the, the huge importance of this promise. I mean, we, we know the story of Israel, at least the first part. We know Genesis, Exodus pretty well. We maybe get a little fuzzy in Leviticus, but you know, we have a sense of the wilderness wanderings. We know that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. We know something about maybe some judges and King David. Probably know something about Solomon. But then things start to get fuzzy. We lose the trail. Maybe that's the point every year where our Bible reading plans fall apart. Or maybe it's just that the, the prophets are hard to understand. But whatever the case, we miss the way that the last half of the Old Testament is God promising to outdo all the other gracious acts he's done before. He is going to, to do something amazing. He's going to make a way in the wilderness for all his people from all over the world, or earth, the known world, are going to come back and they're going to be saved. They're going to come back and worship on his holy mountain. They're going to be restored and forgiven. In terms of the, the story that scripture tells, 
This should be the reason why we, we don't give up reading in 2 Kings. We keep going because there are these prophets who are saying, things look really bad and you deserve it, but your gracious God is offering hope. So keep waiting. Keep waiting for the consolation of Israel. The promise of comfort in Isaiah and the other prophets is like the huge wrapped present under the Christmas tree of Scripture. You know the one, right? It's, it's the one when you shake it, you know it's not socks, right? It's that gift that you've been waiting for, that, that keeps you waiting. God's promise of comfort is what makes it all worth waiting for. And Simeon has been patiently waiting. He's this righteous man, this prophet anointed by the Spirit. He knows full well Israel deserves the exile that they're in. You know, even though they're in their land, they're in their, their kind of house arrest. They're under exile because the Romans occupy it. He knows that they're rightly suffering judgment from God, that God has been hiding his face from them. But as a righteous and devout man, as a careful student of Israel's scriptures, he knows that comfort is coming and he's waiting. And he has another reason to wait. Not just because of the scriptures, but he's got this special promise from the Lord. Verse 26 says, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's interesting, it doesn't say he, he was promised he would not see death until he had seen this baby named Jesus. He's called the Lord's Christ. This is where we find out that the, the consolation of Israel is not a what, but a who. He's called, again, the Lord's Christ. In Hebrew, that would be the word Messiah. This title, Christ, or Messiah, refers to a king in David's line. He's promised also in Isaiah and the Psalms and other places. Simeon is holding on to this hope that God's promised comfort will be fulfilled when a son of David appears on the scene, the Lord's Christ. And he knows, he's been told by God, through the Holy Spirit, you're going to live, you're going to be alive when this guy arrives on the scene. And that's what this scene shows. Simeon comes into the temple in the Spirit. Perhaps the Lord had told him, today's the day, or perhaps the Lord just told him by the power of the Spirit, go to the temple today. I think we're meant to see that, yeah, the special promptings happened just as Joseph and Mary have come to obey the law. And apparently Simeon knows, as soon as he lays eyes on the child, that this is the Christ. This is the Lord's Christ. It's an amazing detail that Simeon picks him up in his arms. Now, apparently Simeon did not know personal boundaries. <laughs> if we were Mary and Joseph in this moment, we'd be like, hey, this deranged, possessed old man has got my baby. Hopefully, Simeon's reputation as a prophet preceded him. But what a moment for Simeon. He knew he would see the Lord's Christ. Did he know that he would meet him as a baby in the temple? Did he imagine in his wildest dreams that he would hold the consolation of Israel in his arms? He does know now that God has kept his word. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen the salvation. Simeon can die in peace now because salvation has arrived. 
We use this expression sometimes as a joke. Well, now I can die in peace, right? The Astros won the World Series. I actually have a book about this written by a Red Sox fan called Now I Can Die in Peace after they broke the curse of the Bambino. But Simeon isn't using this as a laugh line. This isn't a hyperbole. He means it. The time of waiting has ended. The one who can bring peace in death is here. With this infant child in his arms, the long-expected Jesus has come. Salvation has arrived. God has kept his promise. You know, in the contemporary world, we tend to pride ourselves on discernment. We're smart enough to know not to believe big promises when they're made by politicians or your favorite football coach. Probably the announcer, the radio guy, is always full of optimism, right, about the, the team's prospects this year. You know not to believe that. So there's a, a certain kind of cynicism that's necessary to navigate the modern world. But it's a, a tragic mistake if we bring that cynicism to the scriptures. Because God really does make amazing promises, and he always keeps them. He makes promises of comfort to his rebellious people, and he delivers. The righteous man, Simeon, is a witness to us. God's promise has come true. The promised comfort has arrived. The consolation of Israel came. Simeon held it in his arms. He held that baby. Simeon rested his life on the fact that God would keep his promise. What are you resting your life on? Are you resting on the promise of God? So the promise is God's promised comfort, but it's also a surprising comfort. There's three, three surprises, at least here. The first surprise of the comfort that God brings is who it's for. Right? So it says in Luke, uh, early in Luke that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. I think that's verse 25. But then when he's holding the baby in his arms, he's blessing or praising God. He says that this salvation is for all people. It's been prepared for the presence, before, in the presence of all people. It's for both Jews and Gentiles. He says it's a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, by and large, Israelites were only really concerned about Israelites. And they really despised non-Israelites. Just as an example, later in Luke, Jesus goes to preach in the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth. And he takes the opportunity to remind them how back in Elijah's day, Israel was so spiritually bankrupt that God wouldn't do signs in Israel. He, he sent the prophet Elijah to Gentile lands to do miraculous signs. And when Jesus reminds him of this and he says, you know, the Lord's doing the same thing again, they want to kill him. I mean, they hate the idea that he's indicting them, but they also hate the idea, I think, that salvation's coming to the Gentiles. This is not a, a popular thing to say for Simeon. But here he says it. Christ has come for all people to save all, Jew and Gentile alike, Jew and non-Jew. He's come to reveal salvation for all. And that's surprising. The birth of Christ is good news for all people. It's good news for all sinners. When we're telling the story of Israel earlier, we talked about their idolatry, how they were addicted to the pride and power of the surrounding nations, using fortune tellers, you know, accumulating gold and military power for themselves. They were supposed to know better than to live that way, but they are indicted because they're living just like all the pagan nations around them. 
And so we see the, the verdict that Paul offers is right. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All people, no matter their ethnicity, no matter whether they have the law of God or not, they're all acting the same way. They're acting in rebellion against God. We're all guilty, but we can all be forgiven if we come to Jesus by faith. We can know the comfort of God taking away our sin as far as the east is from the west. This is surprising good news. It means that everyone needs to know this good news. So if we have any kind of natural prejudices against other people, then this good news should erase them. You might ask it, who are the people I'm tempted to judge in my heart? You know, perhaps you're partly right to judge them. You know, maybe they've done some terrible, evil things. But do you believe that the gospel could be for them too? Do you believe that the comfort of Christ is even for the people that you find offensive? It's for the bad guys on the evening news, if you still watch the evening news. It's for your annoying neighbor. It's for the rebellious child in your family who's hurt you deeply. Christ's comfort is for all people, for everyone who repents and believes. Do you desire your friends and relations to repent and believe? Are you building relationships with them for the sake of the gospel? Are we sharing Christ's comfort even when it's relationally awkward? This is surprising. This comfort comes for everyone. We should lean into this surprise by preaching the gospel freely and boldly. God has prepared the salvation in the presence of all people. It's for everyone. So that's the first surprise about this comfort. It's the comfort for everyone, not just Israel. The second surprise is the weakness of Christ. Again, the Israelite hope of this long-awaited Messiah in David's line was that he would be a strong military leader, that he'd provide comfort as he violently crushed their enemies, that he'd drive the Romans out of Jerusalem, that maybe he'd recapture all the lands that Solomon and David held and even expand the territory. But the baby Jesus doesn't really fit the picture of this conquering king. I mean, first of all, this child is born to an obscure and poor Galilean family. So the, they're kind of from the boondocks, way up north. And we can tell they're poor because when Mary and Joseph come to the temple to bring their sacrifice, they don't bring a lamb. But the law made provision for them to bring two birds instead, two turtle doves or pigeons. And that's what they bring. This is not a great start for a conquering king. The focus on Jesus' birth at the, at the beginning of the Gospels, I think, is meant to hint at the fact that Jesus comes vulnerable and weak. Jesus here in Luke 2 is a child that can be picked up and held. He's a long way from someone who's going to defeat anybody. The lowly weakness of Christ points to the paradoxical way that he saves and Simeon hints at this too when he tells Mary that a sword will pierce her own heart also. The truth is that the, the consolation of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah, must die if he's to comfort. And not just die, but die in the most humiliating way. For Jesus to bring comfort, he had to die in the place of sinners. 
Remember again, back to Isaiah, they, they needed saving because they were idolatrous and rebellious. They and we have forsaken our good God and we've substituted in God's place every other thing. Some seemingly good, many that are not good. We've put our hope in these things, in pleasures and power and comfort. And because of this, we deserve judgment. We deserve to face the full weight of that terrible day of the Lord that chapter 2 of Isaiah describes. If you keep reading that chapter, you, you see that the Lord is against people and their wickedness. That's the state we're in. We're enemies of God because of our sin. The surprising message of the comfort of Christ is that Jesus came to suffer God's wrath for us. And that's actually the point of his birth. He was born his people to deliver. Though he had eternally existed as the son of God in glory, he set aside his glory to become weak and vulnerable man. He, he was born to die. This is amazing good news. Again, we, we sing about it. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall. This, the everlasting wonder, Christ was born, the Lord of all. The Lord of all was born. He laid aside his treasures to be born in a cattle stall. And he was born in order to die. When we think about Christmas, we love these symbols of light. We decorate our house with lights and our Christmas trees with light. And it's tempting to think that the, the light metaphor is just sort of the, the hope springs eternal idea. A new generation has come. It's, it's all light and it's rosy and there's a warm glow in the manger. But the, the light of Christ's life doesn't truly shine. Until after he's died and risen again. Jesus suffered on the cross, and he had to suffer. He suffered as if he were the idol worshiper, as if he were lustful for power, and as if he were proud. This is the greatest surprise of all, and it's a scandal. It's a scandal to the Jews. Up until the dying breath of Christ in Luke 23, we see that the, the leaders of Jerusalem were scoffing. It says, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They were mocking this very title that Simeon says he's waiting for. The Lord's Christ has come. And they're saying, well, if he's really the Lord's Christ, he should be able to save himself. Jesus died, though he had no sin of his own. One of the thieves next to him proclaims this. He's dying and he's innocent. We're dying that we're guilty. As soon as he's dead, the centurion recognizes, surely this man was innocent. No, he, he died. He suffered death to pay for our sins to pay the price our sin deserves. The surprising weakness of Christ is the reason he can save. He came to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. He tells his disciples, he must suffer. Have you been saved by this weak and suffering Christ? The surprise of the weak and suffering Christ is not only offensive to Jews, is it? It's offensive to all of our pride to admit that we're sinners, that we deserve judgment, that we need this kind of savior. But in order to have the comfort of God in Christ, you must admit it. You have to admit you're a sinner. You have to see that Christ took your place on the cross. The salvation and light and glory that Simeon prophesied come by faith in Christ crucified and risen. 
It's surprising that the mighty Davidic Messiah should have been born in such weakness and was born to die. Is this surprise your comfort? Or does it offend you to hear that you need such a Savior? A Savior like the crucified Christ? If it bothers you, why does it bother you? This leads to the third big surprise of the consolation of Israel. The surprise is that this consolation has a sharp edge. Simeon says, again, this child will be for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The Christ will expose the hearts of his people, and many of them will be revealed as hypocrites. If you've read the Gospels, you know that this is true. Many of the most outwardly religious and pious people are revealed to be too proud to repent and believe in Christ. They reject the Lord's Christ in favor of their own traditions and in favor of their own self-righteousness. Many of these religious leaders are the ones who lead the charge to kill Jesus. They want to put an end to the consolation of Israel. This is just the way their own ancestors acted towards the prophets. This is another paradox of the Christmas stories. Again, we, we think of this maybe cute and sentimental side of hope. Our, our hard hearts can turn soft when looking into a baby's face. Maybe we think that's the message of Christmas. You know, it's just, it's just hope of new life. But that's not the right picture of Christ's birth. The hope of Christ comes through death and resurrection. And one reason Christ was born is to expose us, to have our hearts laid bare, so that we see clearly that we're no better than the, the most grotesque idol worshiper of Isaiah's day, We're no better than the most pious hypocrite of Jesus' day. We are guilty before God. And so we need to receive God's comforting forgiveness. But we have to let the sword pierce our hearts. If we're not, if we're not challenged by this, this cutting edge of the gospel, we can't really participate in the hope. And so if you read the Gospel of Luke, you read Luke 23 this afternoon, and you you meditate on Christ crucified on the cross. To receive his comfort, you must say, he hung there in my place. That's where I deserve to be. God's comfort begins by making us deeply uncomfortable. Has Jesus made you uncomfortable? Has he revealed your heart? So the comfort of God is surprising because it's not just for Israelites, it's for everyone. It didn't come through an impressive show of force, it came through the weakness of one who was born to die and he came to comfort us not by affirming us, but by challenging us and exposing our sin. God's comfort is a surprising comfort and finally it's a marvelous comfort. When Mary and Joseph heard Simeon's prophecy, Luke tells us they marveled at what was said about him. You know, Mary and Joseph at this point had already had their own encounters with God. They know who Jesus is in some sense. They know he's unique, that he's a savior. In chapter one of Luke, Mary has already sung to the Lord the Magnificat that we often recite, or not we, but lots of people recite it. <laughs> we should do it more. Uh, that, that the humble are going to be exalted, that the proud are brought low by this child in her womb. And so they, they know a lot, but when they're told these things by Simeon, they don't say, well, look, that's enough, old man. Give us back the baby. You know, they, they don't say that. 
They marvel at what God is doing through Jesus. They marvel at it. They're standing there in the temple as the parents of this child, but also Christ's people. They are simultaneously father and mother and caring for his daily needs, but they are the objects of his mercy. They are recipients of the salvation he came to bring. They are the lowly ones whom Jesus' coming is exalting. In this sense, they're sort of the the righteous representatives of God's people here. You kind of see the God doing his thing and then God's people doing what we should do in response, marveling at what God has done. It's God's marvelous comfort. We might describe the church as this. We are the people of God created by the marvelous comfort that Christ brings. We are the people of God who have been comforted by the gospel. We are the people who have received the consolation of Israel by faith in the Lord's Christ. And when we think about a, what a church should do, we could come up with a long list. You know, we could come up with the, the Great Commission. We like that. It's a nice action plan. Gives us some stuff to do. We should do that. But we need to be reminded that there's something prior to going and doing. It's marveling, being saved by this gracious promise that God has given. We need to remember what John Piper says in his opening line in his book on missions, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Now he means this as a call to action, that we should be burdened by the the fact that there are so many in the world who don't worship and know God. We should want to reach them with the gospel and and see them become worshipers. But we, we should also see that the gospel creates worshipers. If we receive the gospel, we become worshipers of God. And by by worship, I don't just mean singing. I mean that our our whole hearts are devoted to the Lord and and responding to what he's done for us in Christ. When the gospel transforms a church, it becomes a worshiping church. The gospel creates worshipers. And we could say worshipers are people who marvel together at what God has done in Christ. Christ. And worshipers go out and preach the gospel. We have been comforted, and we want to see others receive this comfort. So Piper says that missions are the, I mean, worship is the goal of missions, but it's also the fuel of missions. If we want to be a missionary church, an evangelizing church, we must start by marveling, by being a worshiping church in our worship services, and in our personal relationships, we should marvel together at the comfort that Christ has brought. Hopefully you've already experienced this this morning in our our worship time, that we've marveled at the grace and comfort of God in the scripture readings we've had. So Geo led us to praise God, our comforter, the, the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who's exalted, yet he dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the hearts of the lowly, those who repent. We marvel at him. Our almighty creator of all things has come down to us. The son of God has become our high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. He came to bear our sin in his own body as the lamb of God. We marvel 
at God's grace to us in Christ. We marvel as we read 1 John that we cannot have fellowship with God, the God of light, and walk in darkness. And yet, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. God has made a marvelous provision for, for sinners. The advocate. Jesus advocates for us, and he does so by pleading the merits of his own blood. So the Son of God says, Those who believe in me, they've been delivered from God's wrath because I took their sin. That's what propitiation means. You know, that word that we see translated advocate in 1 John is a word that means comforter in other places or helper. So it's applied to the Holy Spirit in John 14 through 16. Jesus, uh, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the comforter, the, the helper. Jesus is the advocate, the paraclete. This is our comfort, that we have a Savior who advocates for us based on his own righteous sacrifice. So we see that the, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who created life in Mary's womb, who spoke through Simeon, who anointed Jesus as, this, as God's beloved Son, he's our helper. He indwells us, and he reminds us of Christ's work for us. We see that the Father sent the Son to bear our sin, and the, the Father and the Son sent the Spirit into our hearts to make us alive and to give us faith and to pour out God's love into our hearts. This is our comfort. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working in harmony to comfort us with the salvation that Christ achieved. What a marvelous comfort we have. We encourage each other in this comfort when we confess the words of the Heidelberg Catechism that Jesus fully paid for our sin. So when we recite that, we are saying to each other, brother and sister, Jesus is watching over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. We're saying to each other, because you belong to Christ, the Holy Spirit assures you of eternal life. We comfort each other. We worship together. We marvel at God's comfort. Brothers and sisters, have our hearts grown dull to this gospel? Perhaps the cares of the world, the desire for riches, They've choked our joy in Christ. What's hindering you from marveling at the gospel? We might ask, how am I preparing for worship each week? Do you pray for our time together that we'll marvel together at Christ and be transformed into Christ's worshiping church? Lately in Sunday school, we've been talking about a desire to grow in being the kind of Christian community that reveals the gospel, makes it more clear. But we want to grow in discipling each other and caring for each other with God's word. If you think about something like a one-on-one -on -one or a small group discipleship group, one helpful way to think of the agenda of such a relationship is that there you have two people meeting up regularly with the goal of marveling together at Christ's comfort. Well, they may use a, a book of the Bible they're reading through or another good book by Packer or Piper or Carson to help them do this. But the, the goal is more than, than information transfer. It's worshiping God together. It's as we marvel together at Christ and his comfort that we disciple each other. We teach and encourage each other that this is the most precious thing to be loved by God in Christ. As we marvel together, we warn each other against any sin that would hinder our worship. 
we encourage repentance of sin and faith and obedience because these things lead us to a deeper knowledge of our comfort in Christ. To the return to the passage from 1 John that Heather read from us, it's noteworthy that John speaks extravagantly of God's grace, an advocate with the Father when we sin, and yet this is not in any way a deterrent from holy living. He calls us to obey God's commands and says if, we, if we're not obeying them, we're, we're making God a liar and the truth is not in us. See, marveling is not quietism. It's not just sort of sitting at our, our hands in a holy trance of worship. Marveling leads to obedience. To borrow some more phrases from John Piper, we commend what we cherish. We proclaim what we prize. We serve the one who saved us. The marvelous comfort of Christ is what motivates us. Christ's marvelous comfort motivates us to obey the Great Commission and all that Christ commanded. Christ's comfort is marvelous. A church is a people who marvel together at the comfort of Christ. When we get to know Simeon in Luke 2, we see what a wise man he was. Devout, righteous, and waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Lord brought an end to his waiting. He got to see the Lord's Christ. He got to hold him in his arms. And this indeed was a comfort worth waiting for. Simeon is vindicated in his waiting. Now, we live on the other side of that waiting. Because the long-expected Jesus has come. So we, we can in some ways say it's, it's happened. The consolation is here. The comfort is here. And yet the scriptures teach that we continue to wait. We sometimes speak of this as an already and not yet. It, Jesus has come already, but there's another sense in that he's not come. And we're still waiting. According to the Apostle Paul in his letter to Titus, he says we should seek to live godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself, past tense, to redeem us and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Simeon shows us the way. We are to be righteous and devout and waiting. Waiting helps us to be righteous and devout. But know what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the one who has already come in weakness, who gave himself. We're waiting for him to come in glory and power. We're looking forward to that day when our comfort will be consummated, when every tear will be wiped away. And so it's still right that we sing, Come thou long expected Jesus. We pray as we sing, by thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. This hope that we're waiting for helps us to endure in righteousness. And so because of this promised, surprising, marvelous comfort is sure, it is indeed a hope worth waiting for. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that you would keep filling our minds with the comfort that is ours in Christ. We ask you to help us to be a people who truly do marvel together at what we have in Christ, that we would do so each week as we gather, that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified in our meetings, that the gospel would saturate everything we do. We also help us, ask you to help us to do so more and more in our relationships, to invest in each other with the gospel, that we would teach and admonish each other as we marvel about Jesus together. Father, we, we want to be a church where Jesus is magnified in all things, and so we pray that you do that, and we pray that you'd give us endurance until Jesus comes. Jesus, we pray that you will indeed come quickly. Amen.